0: Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're talking about joy uh, this morning. I wonder what kind of Savior you have in mind when you think about the Savior of the world and and Jesus. And this is your Savior uh, come with a man bun. Does uh, he come uh, with autographs? Does he come in a famous way or does he come in uh, a cradle? Um, does he come wrapped up in flesh uh, or is he a warrior king who's ready to take on battle in this life Uh, um, i want to talk about joy but i want us to keep uh, a framework in our mind of the savior that we worship uh, the god who we've come to know uh, and we get a glimpse of uh, in the cradle or in the manger around christmas time i don't know about you but i love getting good news i love to share good news um but right now, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of great news uh, that you hear. I mean, it feels like everywhere we look, there's bad news, and you, know, you turn, on, turn on the TV, and you pick a channel, and there's bad news. And it doesn't really matter what channel you're watching. If you watch that channel long enough, there's going to be some kind of bad news that you walk away with. You're like, dang, like every time I turn this on, or every time I listen to the radio, all I hear is, it's getting worse, it's getting worse, it's getting worse. And, and I don't know what to do with that. And So everywhere I look around, it just feels like a mess. But some of the bad news that, man, that I've really been struggling with over the past, uh, I don't really past maybe the last half a year, but it's really kind of circling around here recently, and God just kind of brought it around to my mind uh, this week, is, is that we have a whole generation um, of young people, and not just young people, but I would say a group of 30s to 50s uh, as well, and so if you consider that young, I'm talking about you too then. Uh, so we have a group of young people in 30s to 50s that have begun doing something that's been called deconstructing, that we've begun to to deconstruct uh, our faith. And by deconstruct, what I mean is that we're breaking down a a faith that's been handed down to us over the years, or a faith that um, we were taught while we were growing up, and and a faith that we adhered to, and that we loved and we cherished. But somewhere along the line, somebody has said something, and we've begun to, to walk away from it. And so when I say deconstruct, It's breaking down what we've held on to uh, for for so many years, and maybe it's been 20 years, maybe it's been 50 years, um, but we've begun to break away from that. And it's been hard for me to to read about and to to hear about and to kind of process that. But to be fair, I think there are certainly elements of modern and cultural Christianity that we probably do need to shed from. Um, there's this moral therapeutic deism that we've kind of held to that Jesus is supposed to come in and he's just supposed to make my life happy and neat and everything's supposed to feel good. And if anything doesn't feel good, then I, just, I can just kind of walk away from that. Jesus, what his role is, he's to be a good buddy, a good friend, and make me feel good about myself. And if that's not who he is to me, then he can't really be God. And so we've attached that to our Christianity. And we and we attach that, like we are on the bounds um, of really kind of falling apart But we're also on the bounds of heresy uh, as well. And so there are some things that we just really need to shed away from that we've just adopted because it's been culturally accepted and we've added to, we've become what some people would call syncretistic. We grab little bits and pieces of faith that we've heard out in the culture or little bits of even American Christianity and attach it to this is what Jesus is supposed to look like and this is who Jesus is supposed to be. And when he doesn't act or think or do those sorts of things, then our faith begins to break down. And so those are things that we need to detach from. But it feels to me like we're kind of living in this society um, and, and I keep reading about and I keep hearing about people who are deconstructing their faith. And what's happening is they're discipling others to come along with them in this journey saying, hey, as I deconstruct and break this thing down, why don't you come along with me and break yours down too? Almost like it's a disease that we've got to be cured from. Like, like it's something that we've been enduring for the past 20, 30 years of our life. And now we've finally been open up our mind enough where we can shed this, this gospel that we've held for so long and, and enter into a new era and a new age of, of truth. And so we're being discipled. into this place and what you're seeing is this mass exodus of people who are following this cultural movement away from the truth and i would say away from the good news of jesus and when you take jesus out of the equation and you move him away from our lives and you separate who we are from that what happens is there's a void of joy that gets left behind because the reality is and this isn't to be cliche or, or whatnot but this is the reality when there's no jesus there really is no joy and because joy is something that we, that's not circumstantial. Joy is something that lasts through the ups and downs of life. It's not like if things go the way that I want it to go or things just pan out the way that I want it to go that I can have joy. Happiness can do that. You can be happy when things are going well and you can be sad when things are going well, but joy is something that does, isn't based on circumstances. But when you remove Jesus out of the picture, now it becomes circumstantial. Now it becomes, if things go well, I can be okay. But where there's no Jesus, there is really no joy. And so I've been watching this and I'm trying to make sense out of all of it. And I know that there are some real honest folks who are trying to figure out, what do I do with Jesus? And we're just trying to search this out. But as I'm processing what I'm seeing, it feels like that we're in this society where we're desperately, desperately grappling with something that, that I've just called, like, man, this, this is the battle of self. We're battling self. And here's what I mean by that. We want a world that we can control, don't we? I mean, let's be honest. When things feel out of control, what do we feel like in ourself? Like, if I was in control, things would be better. We want a world that we can control. We want a world that, like, we're, we're, we're pulling the strings. And, and we want, in the same vein, we want a God that we can essentially design that works for our particular lifestyle, whatever that lifestyle may be, just fit in whatever, whatever it is that you do, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to be, wherever you want to go. If we want a God that helps us to accomplish the lifestyle that, that we want to live, whatever that lifestyle might be. And we want a God who conforms to us and signs off on the things that we do rather than conforms and transforms us into his image and likeness. We want him to sign off on, on our life. And so if we read anything in the Bible or we hear anything that's taught from the scriptures and, and, and it's something that contradicts with who we in our mind already believe God to be or something that contradicts with the current culture of Christianity or our lifestyle that we've been trying to live, we are left with a choice to make. And the choice is we either assume that God wasn't serious when he said it in the first place or we assume that if he said it, maybe it wasn't true. That the words that he said wasn't true, and then we have a battle against his character, who he says he is and the words of truth. And so we can either just, just assume that everything was wrong that was ever written or disregard it as not really being serious, or we can, I think, in the realm of humility when we approach the Bible, we let God's word spirit, we let God's spirit speak to us through His word, and we allow him to make the adjustments inside of us that we need that allows us to look less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus. More and more like Jesus and less and less like the darkness that he stepped into and that he continues to step into. And we've said a thousand times over from this stage, and we hear it in in our Christianity, that that God is for us, right? God is for us, he is for us, he is for us, he is for us, and he is not against us. And a thousand times over, we see throughout the scripture that this is true, that he is for us but he doesn't try to squeeze himself into our lifestyle. He doesn't try to squeeze himself into our plans. He doesn't try to conform to us. What he does is he comes in and he transforms us, puts his spirit inside of us, transforms us to look like him. And then we begin a process of, of conforming to his image rather than him changing to our image. Because scripture tells us that God is immutable, that he doesn't change. And so we don't bring him down to change our world or to change, um, sorry, we don't bring him down and and make him conform to us. He comes down and and he allows us to conform to him. This is who he is. This is who our God is. And we have this conflict when we're battling the self and who we want God to be and who he actually is. And and so we end up on this journey of what we've been seeing of, of deconstruction. But we can't just have everything our way. If we could have everything our way, God wouldn't have needed to come our way. But we can't have things our way. And so God did come our way, and he did so in Jesus. He did it in Emmanuel. He did it with God with us. And so this journey of deconstructing, it ultimately leads us away from the good news of great joy. It doesn't lead us to greater joy. It leads us away from this great joy. And here's the reality. Jesus steps into this world to set us free from the bondage of self. He steps in to set us free from the bondage of self and so that we might be able to move towards the joy that he came to offer us. And so that's what I want to read about when we look at Luke 2. That's what I want to frame what's happening here. So in Luke 2, you you have these words. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you'll recognize him by this sign. You'll find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angel had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about, guys. When you look at the first five verses, um, you you really don't see anything supernatural going on. You know, we think about Christmas and we think about the birth of Jesus and we think about this whole thing, and it just everything just feels so incredibly supernatural. But when you read these first few verses here, there doesn't seem to be anything supernatural going on. This is boring, ordinary stuff. Augustus, the emperor, a census going on, and if this were a movie, like we wouldn't pay attention. We'd sit there on our couch and, like, three fourths of us would have already kind of picked up our phone and started scrolling on social media, right? Because it doesn't capture our attention. Like, this isn't the kind of stuff that jumps off the page for us. And so it doesn't seem like it's a big deal. But this is the, what's happening here is that this is being written by a guy named Luke. Luke was a Gentile Christian, which means that he was not born a Jew. And he was a friend of the Apostle Paul. And and he hears about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He responds in joy, and he places faith in Jesus, right? His life is completely flipped upside down, and so the gift that he had, God begins to use and he becomes becomes a historian for the truth of God. He becomes a a spokesman for Jesus and and who he was. And so Luke now, he's this doctor, and what do we know about doctors? Doctors are, if anything, they are precise, right? Like They want to get everything just right. They pay attention to detail. If you're going to a doctor who's not paying attention to detail, go somewhere else, right? Because when you're in the operation room, you don't want a guy who's just kind of like winging it. Like It's just like, oh, maybe we have the tools that we need to do this job. I don't know. Doctors are precise, and Luke was a doctor of the most precise order. He's not in there just winging it, right? And so as a doctor, he is keenly aware Of the need to pay attention to the details because if you miss some of the details in the operation room it's a matter of life and death and so luke takes truth very seriously and so he's writing this letter to this fellow named theophilus we read that in the beginning of the book of luke and we also read it in the book of acts later because luke writes that as well and this is to theophilus as well and we don't really know who theophilus was but we know that he's writing us to give him an account of all the things that happened in the life of jesus and so the way that he does this is that he goes around as a good historian and he asks eyewitnesses, tell me what you saw. Like, I wasn't there, so you tell me what you saw. So like, who was Jesus? Like, how did he act? What did he, what did he live like? What did he love like? Tell me what you heard. What, what were people saying uh, about him? The truth was incredibly important to Luke. See, Christianity has never been, nor is it now, just this blind faith kind of a deal of just like, here, take it, receive it, and just just go, and uh, that, that's all, with just with a bunch of pat answers. It's always been Jesus saying, you know what? Hey, come follow me. Come watch and see with your own eyes. Watch how I live. Watch how I love. Watch and you see who I am and what my character is. And if you weren't there to see it firsthand, make sure that you don't just catch the cliff notes from somebody else. Make sure that you come alongside and you check my words. You see how I live. Check it out for yourself. Scripture tells us over and over again, that we just don't take it as we hear it. Like we study it. We get in and we investigate the truth of scripture and we come to the conclusion. Because a good conclusion really is a matter of, of life or death. When you open up the book of Acts, what Luke talks about, he talks about there is a group of people called the Bereans that when he spoke, that, when Paul came and spoke truth there, like they wanted to make sure that what was being spoken and what was being said has actually been validated and they studied it. They didn't just take it at word value. And so scripture tells us, study. Don't just leave it sitting on the surface. But we live in a day and an age right now where you can't trust anything, man. Like everything, you have to fact check everything. You can't believe what you see even anymore because like we li- we're living in this virtual reality world where like, I don't even know, like, am I seeing what I'm seeing? Am I, am I reading what, something that's accurate? So in a world like this, even then, like there, there, were, there were punks. There were people who were, who were teaching things that weren't true. There were people out there that were trying to shade the system. And so in, a, in an environment like that, Luke is like, hey, trust trust what's being said about Jesus, but also verify. Don't, don't just take it on the surface level. Verify and investigate this. I think this is where some of the deconstruction is happening in our society. We don't take the time to in- investigate. Um, we don't take the time to investigate the truth and to, to study and to evaluate it. And so when something comes along in this modern-day wave or a modern-day fad, or we bump into something that really feels like a crisis of faith and we don't know where to go with our questions and we, and we don't um, dig in to see what the, the answers are, the, there's not deep enough roots to help sustain what's being thrown at us. Um, our roots don't go uh, deep enough, and so our... Um, we find ourselves being steeped heavily in the culture and find ourselves being steeped heavily in what we're reading and seeing. And we find ourselves sitting pretty shallow on the surface of what God has taught us. And when there aren't any roots that go down deep where the water is, or if there aren't any roots that are being watered by, by, by the, the water of God's word and the water of presence with the Lord, what happens is deconstruction can happen very easily. Because the, the truth that we're hearing is, is against what scripture says, but that's what we're investing our time in. There's really no presence in the, rela- the relationship that we have with God. And, and, and there are all kinds of religions that are out there in the world um, that, that claim all sorts of things. But one thing that marks Christianity that's different than everything else, it's not just a religion, and this isn't a cliche kind of a thing, but what marks Christianity for what it is, it's this relationship with Jesus. It's, it's having a relationship with him, and when you have a relationship with him, and you're building into that relationship, and you're spending time in the presence of God, and you're digging into his word, and you're investigating, what happens during that time is the relationship causes roots to go deep. And as your roots are going deep, you're able to sustain this wave and this fad of deconstruction or whatever wave comes around at some point in, in time because the roots go deep. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the seed and the sower. You remember that? He talked about there is a sower who goes out, and he's talking about the gospel and sowing seeds of the gospel. And so he's going out, and he's throwing seeds, and and some lands on the path, and the sun comes out and burns it up, and so it kind of takes care of that. There's some seed that that land where the thorns are, and so when the seed grows up, it gets caught up up in the thorns, and he relates that with the cares and the concerns of the world. But then there's some seed that lands in good soil, and that soil, it sticks, and that seed begins to grow in that soil, and it begins to get water, and then it produces um, all kinds of a harvest, scripture says, Right? And what happens as it's producing is that it's not getting caught up in the cares of the world like that, 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 get, that, that grew up in the midst of the thorns. And I would say that the thorns represent, what I would say, this God of self, the care of what's going around me and not the care of what God has for our lives. We're getting concerned with all this other stuff and we're getting choked out. And, and so the life and the joy that we desire is getting choked by, that, by the thing that we get planted in. But if we're planted in good soil and we're watering in the good soil, there's growth that happens there. And so what seems to be just crazy useless information, it doesn't really matter to the modern reader like like you and me here, this was deeply important because it sets the story in a time and a place that's verifiable in history, right? And if it's happened in history, you have to do something with it. If it happened in history, you can't just denounce it as like, no, it's not true, it didn't happen. But what Luke is doing as a good historian, he's marking in history and saying, there was a governor... There was a Caesar, there was an emperor, there was a guy who did a census, and you can go back through the pages of history and be like, yes, this happened. It's not a fairy tale that we can just disregard. It's history, and you have to deal with it. And so after careful and well-documented observation, what Luke says as a good doctor is, this is my diagnosis. The diagnosis is that it's true. The good news of Jesus' birth, it's true. The good news of his life well-lived, it's true. The good news of the cross and the bad news of uh, of our sin. Um, the good news is that he took it away. He took it to the cross. Like I can verify to you that this is true, and it demands a response from those who heard it. And so, how do we respond when we hear about this gospel? How do we respond when we hear about this good news? You know, sometimes my kids, and probably if you've got kids, they've said this to you too. They're like, uh, "Hey, uh, Dad, what was it like back when you were young?" And they're punks, right? Like they just like, just want to mess with me. They, they just wanted to, dad, what was it like? Did they have shoes back then? Yeah, they had shoes. Did they have cars back then, dad? Yeah, they had cars. I'm not that old. All right, come on, give me a break. But a lot's changed over the years, right? I mean, it's been decades, but a lot's changed o- over, over time. Like when I was a kid, like if you wanted to talk to somebody on the phone, you have, you're attached to a wall, like, if you wanted to turn the television, you had to get up and change the te- Like, our TVs didn't hang on the walls; They were on the floor, and they held all, all, all kinds of stuff on top of them. A lot's changed over the decades, right? But there's one thing that hasn't changed that stayed, that stayed consistent, is that there is a God in heaven who sent his son Jesus to step into history at an exact moment in time, not to deconstruct our faith, not to deconstruct the faith of the Jews, but to fulfill the law and to fill up the faith. To, to bring somebody to sit on the throne of David so that our sin might be dealt with, so that we might have a ruling and a reigning king, not just now, but a reigning king forever. That stays consistent, to set us free from the bondage of self and, and, and to, to give us an opportunity to step in to, to joy. And so in a world that's chaotic and weary as the world is waiting for peace, and I would say, if we were to put it in modern context, maybe even ready to walk away and deconstruct, what Jesus was doing, he was stepping in and saying, hey, I'm going to offer you joy. I'm going to restore your heart to a place of joy. I'm going to give you the opportunity to live in non-circumstantial joy. And so he says, you've got a Roman emperor, Augustus. He's given a census. And the census is all about power, right? Power and money. That, that's what the Roman empire was about. And so you've got the census. And so let's count the people that we have And so that we can see how much we can tax them and how many dollars that we can come in. How many people do we have around here so that we can sign them up for the military, so that we can continue to advance the Roman influence and domination that's going on. That's why he was doing a census. And what looks normal on the surface, God has some supernatural thing going on behind the scenes. He is at work. And Augustus, this Roman pagan worshiping guy, has no idea that God is moving him behind the scenes to bring about a birth of a Christ child in Bethlehem, but God is using this this Augustus to bring about the birth of this Christ child. And so because Joseph is um, betrothed to Mary, and he's chosen to be the adoptive father of of the Son of God, how about that for a rule, dads? You want to be the adoptive father of the Son of God? Of Jesus, y'all know Jesus was adopted, right? Like, yeah, like something like I've never heard that before. Like Jesus was a he was adopted um, by Joseph. Like he was birthed out of Mary, but Joseph had to make the conscious choice that I'm going to choose to bring you into my I'm going to marry you. I'm going to adopt you as my own son. Because he didn't have an earthly father. His father was heavenly. He lived in the heavens, he created all things. I didn't have an earthly father. So Joseph said, I'm going to man up and I'm going to walk beside you. I'm going to do what God's asked me to do. I'm going to adopt you into my family. This is one of the reasons why Christians, that we are so big on foster care and we are so big on adoption because God, the father in the old Testament and within the new Testament says, Hey, take care of the widows, take care of the poor, take care of the fatherless. And so we come along, children come alongside of children and we father and we mother in places that we had no right to be in. But we, because God has called us into that place, and we see an example of Joseph saying, you know what, I'm going to father the Son of God while he's on this earth. And so Joseph, he takes Mary, and um, very much nine months pregnant Mary, okay, nine months pregnant, he takes her to Bethlehem. He takes her from Nazareth to Bethlehem because um, David's line, his ancestry, goes all the way to Joseph. And so because David was born in Bethlehem, Joseph has to go back to Bethlehem. God is working the details of history. And it's working behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. And so he takes this, his bride down to Bethlehem. And we've got to get real practical here. Okay, ladies? Can we talk just for a second? Like, we've got to get real practical here. This journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, this is about a 70 mile trek. Okay? To put in our context here, that's Ashland um, out to York, give or take a mile. I think it's from, from our, our house, it's like 66 miles um, to York or whatnot. So. Mary's getting ready to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Again, did I say she's nine months pregnant? Like, she's ready to pop. Ladies, like, when you're nine months pregnant, do you want to travel anywhere? No. And, and so Joseph's like, baby, it's going to be okay. Like, I got a donkey for you. <laughs> nine months pregnant, bouncing around on a donkey, 70 miles. How's that feel, ladies? Oh, you don't have to ride the donkey, you can walk. Nine months pregnant, 70 miles walking. How's that feel? Like, this is not what, this, like, this is where the desire of self and God's will begin to meet each other. Because it's not always exactly what we would decide. It's not always what we'd have looked for. It's not always what we would have preferred. It's just, it's just not. And and so you have this 80 mile or 70 mile trek that's not in a suspension on a car. It's not on a smooth route 80, right? That's not happening in that direction. And there's no embassy suites along the way. This is a long journey, long days, chilly nights, no breakfast, waiting for you in the morning. Like this is a a big deal. I remember when Ashley was pregnant with Anderson, Uh, Anderson was, uh, he was almost 10 pounds uh, when he was born. If you look at him, like no surprise, right? He was, he was a big boy from, from day one. And uh, with Ashley, like there was like literally, there was no physical real estate left inside of her. Like, Like nine months, like there is no room left going on. And everything was uncomfortable for her. Like, like, breathing was uncomfortable. Trying to get comfortable was uncomfortable. Like, it, it was just, like, it was bad. It was rough for her. And, and I think the, the statute of limitations has worn off on this uh, because he's 10 now, and so I think I, or about to turn 10, so I think I could share the story. <laughs> can I, I can share the story? <laughs> Thanks, babe. Um, we're sitting on the couch, and... Um, I don't know. Ashley's not lazy. So, she, so like normally, she's up and just doing whatever uh, needs to be done. But I remember she was sitting on the couch and she didn't want to get up. She didn't want to move. And, and so, uh, we got a plate of food uh, sitting beside of her. And so, she takes the plate of food. I look over and, uh, like, she's nine months pregnant. Anderson was big. And she was like, boop, right on the belly and just sits there. It doesn't go anywhere. I'm like, whoa. And then, on top of that, she reaches over and she grabs, like, a coffee mug and puts it right there. She's like, got the whole tray right there going on. I'm like, how is this even possible? Now, if I were to look at her and said, hey, babe, I love you so much. I'm going to take you on a 70-mile trip right now. And we're going to walk there. I'm going to put you on a donkey. It's going to be great. You know what would have happened? She would have turned around and either socked me with her fist. She's pretty strong. Um, or she would have swung around and hit me with Anderson. Like, that's what would have happened, okay? Like, it, it, it would have been, been a rough deal. Whether uh, Mary walked those 70 miles whether she rode a donkey though, 70 miles, it doesn't really uh, matter. What, what we know either way is that this was a long journey and it was uncomfortable. And this is the route that the Savior decided to come into the world with. Um, he was choosing to come into the world that he created, a world that he owned. He, he designed a long, long time ago. He was coming into the world like this. And this is the kind of stuff, again, that the self doesn't like. Self likes comfort. Self likes having it our way. Self likes predictable Self doesn't like going into places that we don't understand and we don't know what the next step is going to be, and and we just don't like hard. Self likes the comfort route. But it's the normal and it's the mundane, and I would even say it's the the difficult stuff at times that God chooses to use to accomplish his goal of non-circumstantial joy. Not joy that we have because things are going well, but non-circumstantial joy um, that we can enter into in in our lives. It's often in the hard stuff that, that God will say to us, are you going to obey me in this? Are you gonna walk with me in this? Are you gonna trust me in this? I know you wouldn't prefer this route. I know you would like it to be different. If you were, if you were God and you were in control, you would do it a different way. But this is a route that I'm taking you down because this will rid you from the God of self and it will help you to experience a true and lasting non-circumstantial joy. In the midst of us wanting to control and own everything our own way, this is how I'm going to take your grip off of yourself and allow you to lean in and experience joy. This is the path of joy. It's not always the route that we would take. This is the route to joy. And then you have the main event that comes in in verse 6 and 7. And all of history has been waiting to see this. Brothers and sisters who've died and gone, who are in heaven, um, the heavens were waiting to see this. The angels were waiting to see this. Mary and Joseph, they've been waiting for this moment. They know it's coming. They don't know what it's going to look like, but they know it's on its way. The rest of the society has no idea that this is getting ready to take place in this moment. And here's what he says. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Moms, I want you to try to imagine this scene. I was listening to a pastor talk um, about this particular scenario uh, this, this past week, and um so, we don't know exactly what the manger scene looks like, right? We don't know what the nativity looks like. We, we have creative ideas. We put them outside of our house. We we uh, acted out on the stage with our kids. But we really don't know. We, uh, it, could have been a, it could have been a stone cave, you know, that had been carved out, and, and that could have been the place. It, it could have been a, a house that had kind of a drop down um, uh, place stable for animals to live in. It could have been out in the field. We just don't know. We just don't know. But what we do know is that God the Son stepped into humanity and he came in in the flesh. That's what we know. The heavenly became incarnate. The divine put on flesh. He became one of us. Think about that for a second. I mean, like if you haven't been paying attention, like up to this point, think about this for a minute. God stepped out of heaven. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, wrapped himself in flesh. If that's hard for you to like, get your mind around, it's hard for me. It's helpful if you take a look at your hands. Go ahead and do that. Take a look at your hands or your arms and, and reach down and touch your flesh. Go ahead. Maybe you got hair there. You see your, your hair follicles and scars maybe there. Like This is the stuff that Jesus was born into. He wrapped himself in flesh. He stepped out of the heavenly. Put this stuff on. He put skin around himself, and he became one of us, and, and he did this for you, and he did it for me. He became flesh, put on real skin, just wrapped himself in our lives to give us life. Moms, I want you to think about this too, um, the reality of what that, the nature of that scene would have been like. You know, you, you get married, or you, you, have, you have babies, and uh, you know it's happening, and so you um, you think about what that day is gonna be like in the hospital or if you do it at home, like how, however that's gonna look, but you, you get excited about that and you prepare the room and you, you you get things like you do the wedding or the 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 baby registry and people are signing up and like I'm gonna get this, I'm gonna get that, and and you start doing the showers and you get the room all set up and it's beautiful and you've got the bassinet sitting by your bed for when the baby comes home and man it's just everything. You're just it's just ready, it's beautiful. Mary didn't have that. We didn't have a time to prepare for this. She's traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And she's not in her own environment. She's not got Bed Bath & Beyond around her. She's not got the Target registry. Like, she's there, and whether it was her or whether it was Joseph, the picture that Scripture gives us is that this baby is going to be laid in a manger. You know what a manger is, right? It's, it's, it's not the you know, the, the wooden, you know, hay stubble stuff that we, we put, maybe it was. But it's Mary or Joseph who's reaching in and cleaning out the bits of food that the animals would have been eating. And you know what happens in the barnyard scenes where there's animals and assuming that because there's a manger here that's been used as a food trough and now is being used as the, as the, um, the cradle for a child? You know what the aroma of that space is? It's not essential oils. It's not young living, right? It's not doTERRA. It's it's not that that's filling up the nostrils. It's the smell of animals. It's the smell of outside. It's the the smell of things that you try to keep away from your kids when they're being freshly born. And, and, And so they scoop out this place and they lay Jesus in this place. Mamas, you wouldn't do that, right? Mary had to do what she had to do. In, in this moment. We know that Jesus was um, in the, the flesh because he gets wrapped in strips of cloth. Um, you know why you wrap babies in strips of cloth back then and the same now is for security and for warmth. And it's a picture of, this is a real-life birth. This is a this is real human being who stepped into the world. Um, uh, Adeline was our firstborn, and uh, I had no clue about babies, no clue whatsoever. I was a, um, the, the, the youngest of two, and so there were never really any babies around in our house, so I didn't know how to take care of kids um, at all. Uh, I faked it when we, had, when we had Adeline. I was like, I've got this all figured out. Um, but when she was born, uh, the, like Ashley, had, like we did like the class, right? This is how you wrap up babies and whatnot. But like, she'd been warm and cozy, cocooned inside of Ashley's tummy for nine months. But there came a time when it was time for her to pop out of there and she was going to be um, cold because once that warm body hits the cold air, she wants to feel secure and she Wants to, to feel warm again immediately. And so they, they tell you, like, you, well, you got to get the warming blankets out and you got to wrap them up. And so I got real good at wrapping up babies, okay? And, and so I knew that you lay the baby on top of the, the little square and you pull up the, the bottom corner up over the feet and then you bring the other corner over and you wrap it around behind the back and you start getting really nice and tight. And then you take the other corner and you wrap it around tight. So they're nice and snug, right? Because the, there's security in that and there's warmth in that. Adeline was like a Houdini and she always got her hands out. I'm like, don't you want to be warm? Don't you want to be secure? This is for you. Uh, but this is a sign. This is a picture of the heavenly has stepped down from heaven and he's stepped into earth. You don't wrap up somebody who's not human. You don't wrap up somebody who, who's not a real life human being. And so this, we know he was real. So she wraps him in swaddling cloths because he's in the, the flesh. But although we see this real-life birth, we know that there's so much more going on because the night gets a little bit crazy after that moment, doesn't it? Look at verse 8. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them and said, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. This is the news that the world wanted to hear. This is the news that they needed. This is the news that we needed. This is the birth that brings joy for them and for us. And he says in verse 11, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you'll recognize him by this sign. You'll find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, real birth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. Real human Real God, really in the cradle. Here he is. And news like this demands a response. Not a deconstructing response, but a response that we land on to build upon. And here's how the the shepherds who saw this responded when they heard this news. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. They said, let's turn our attention away from ourselves. Let's turn our attention away from our comfort." Let's turn our attention away from the things that we know right now, even away from our occupation. Let's turn our attention away from self and let's go see the Savior. News like this demands a response. They respond in joy. How do we respond to Jesus' birth? How do we respond? Do we deconstruct our faith or do we allow Jesus, do we allow God, do we allow him to deconstruct ourselves so that we can walk down a path of joy that he is destined for, for you and me? God's path to joy isn't what we would always assume it would be. It's not always circumstantial. It's not like getting our way and wanting it our way and having it our way. He came to rid us from the bondage of that stuff so that we can actually walk in, in true joy. The route towards joy is through Jesus. He steps into the world to free us from the bondage so that he can offer us joy. So what's that mean? What's that mean for us? Why, how, did, how is that practical for us? Well, it means that I can be honest when I struggle. It means that when I'm having a crisis of faith, I don't have to hide it. I can talk about it. I can talk with friends. I can... But it also means that I'm free to open up the scriptures and to investigate. When I have a crisis of faith, I don't have to follow the crowd. Like I can think for myself, I don't have to follow a fad, I don't have to follow a wave, I don't have to follow the trend of the culture, that because Jesus is who he says he is, and his word holds up under history, and it holds up under scrutiny, that I can trust his word, and so when I am in doubt, I can go here, I can think for myself, and, and I'm free to look into the manger, I'm free to have relationship with him, I'm free to experience joy, and to, to dance in the middle of that joy when it doesn't make any sense when things are chaotic and reckless and everything feels like it's falling apart, that I can have this, I can have this joy when things just, when it looks like everything is falling apart and people look at you like, what the heck is wrong with you? Man, I, I've got joy. What do you mean you got joy? How can you have joy in the middle of all this? Because my joy rests on Jesus, a person who came, who lived, came in the flesh and who died and took my sin away and I enter into that joy that enables me to, yeah, I don't like this, I don't like what's going on, but I can still have this heart of joy in this midst so i am free to examine the scriptures i'm free to be honest i'm free to think for myself and i'm free to look into the manger there, and, and you know just a few days we're going to sit around a tree and we're going to um, be with friends and family and it's going to be glorious there's going to be presence everywhere and we're going to we're going to laugh and we're going to probably sing we're going to read and this is going to be uh, amazing in all kinds of different ways but I just want to encourage you that when you sit around and you see these presents that are wrapped up, that you realize that the true present, that the joy, like there, there will be happiness that come from the presents that we get to open. Like, Yeah, like we like that stuff. It's good. It's good to enjoy. It's, it's good to lavish love on each other that way. But the real present isn't going to be what's wrapped up under the tree. The real present that brings joy is the one who came wrapped up in flesh, who would eventually grow up and go to a cross and die for us so that we really could have a real relationship with him and walk in with joy to any circumstance that we have. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for our time together. Thanks that uh, you met us in this place. Uh, Father, uh, almost even regardless of what's said here, your spirit just, just works and does his thing. You had a word for everybody in here. And it's different for for each of us because your spirit moves the way that he wants to move. But I thank you that we got to hear your word. Um, We get to apply your word. And I pray, Father, that as we go out over the next couple of days, God, that we would just remember that joy isn't in our circumstances, that joy isn't in our present under the tree, that our joy is, is going to be in knowing you, loving you, and building on your foundation. I pray in Jesus' name.